Blog Talk Radio. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent, who dreams for their child, and every child who dreams for their future. I say these words to you tonight. I am with you, I will fight for you, and I will win for you. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. Mega, mega, mega. 
after the other I want I want to get to that um as well as you know we had a we had a great show uh tons of great shows last week um they all went really well um I got a lot of good feedback um a lot of good um you know people saying they uh strongly enjoyed it so I uh it's that's awesome I'm very very thankful for that um you know, today's show that we're going to have U.S. intelligence expert, political strategist, director of Jihad Watch, and best-selling author Robert Spencer will be calling in. Uh, we'll also be having investigative, investigative reporter, war correspondent, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, and New York Times best-selling author Kenneth, Timmer, Kenneth Timmerman will be calling in. Um, Josh, my co-host, is on the line. Uh, Valerie, my co-host, is on the line. How are you guys? How's it Great, going? Thanks. Excellent, excellent. So obviously, you know, um, Trump has been on a long trip. Um, he has, you know, he was in England. Uh, he met the Queen. He met with Theresa May. Um, he, you know, was um, meeting obviously with Putin. That's the big one we're getting to. He met with the, uh, pre- the president of uh, Finland briefly. Um, you know, he, he was all over the place for, uh, you know, for about a week, a little over a week, I think, but I do want to play some clips. Um, I want to, first I want to play Trump and, uh, Theresa May vaguely talking in there, the Trump and the U S uh, the Britain bond that Trump describes, which I think he did very well in the press conference with Theresa May, uh, real quick though. One, two. So I would say I give our relationship 
in terms of grade, the highest level of special. So we start off with special. I would give our relationship with the U.K., and now, especially after this two days, uh, with uh, your prime minister, I would say the highest level of special. Now, am I allowed to go? Am I allowed to go higher than that? I'm not sure. But it's the highest level of special. They're very special people. It's a very special country. And as I said, you know, I have a relationship because my mother was born in Scotland. So very important. Uh, as far as the advice, I did give her a suggestion. I wouldn't say advice. And I think she found it maybe too brutal. And that's so too, because I could see that. But I, I don't know if you remember what I said. But I, I did give her a certain amount of uh, I, I gave her a suggestion, not advice. I wouldn't want to give her advice. I'd give her a suggestion. Uh, I could fully understand why she thought it was a little bit tough. And maybe at some day she'll do that. If they don't make the right deal, she might very well do what I suggested that she might want to do. But it is not an easy thing. Look, look at the United States, how the European Union has taken advantage systematically of the United States on trade. It's a disgrace. So it's not an easy negotiation. Well said, Mr. President. And I want to play another, I'll play another quick, quick clip of uh, Trump and Theresa May. Uh, one five. I want to thank you for your very gracious hospitality. Thank you very much, Teresa. Melania and I were delighted to join you and Philip for dinner. It was a wonderful and memorable evening that we will not soon forget. And I'm going to do it, and she's going to do it, and we're all going to do it together. We have to stop terrorism. I encourage the prime minister to sustain pressure on the regime. And she needed absolutely no encouragement because she, in fact, also encourages me. Once the Brexit process is concluded and perhaps the U.K. has left the EU, I don't know what they're going to do, but whatever you do is okay with me. That's your decision. Whatever you're going to do is okay with us. Last night, I think I got to know the prime minister better than at any time. We spent a lot of time together over a year and a half, but last night we really... Uh, I was very embarrassed for the rest of the table. We just uh, talked. I didn't criticize uh, the prime minister. I have a lot of respect for the prime minister. It didn't put in what I said about the prime minister, and I said tremendous things. And I think she's doing a terrific job, by the way. Go ahead. Ask, ask the prime minister. This incredible woman right here is doing a fantastic job, a great job. Uh, but I've actually gotten to know her better than ever, and I think she's a terrific woman. I think she's doing a terrific job. And that Brexit is a very tough situation. That's a tough deal. She's going to do the best. I give our relationship in terms of grade the highest level of special, especially after this two days uh, with uh, your prime minister. I would say the highest level of special. Now, am I allowed to go? Am I allowed to go higher than that? I'm not sure. I gave her a suggestion, not advice. I wouldn't want to give her advice. I'd give her a suggestion. She might very well do what I suggested that she might want to do, but she can always do that. She can do that at some point. She can do what I suggested to her. My suggestion was, you know, respectfully submitted. Uh, she will do very well. I think she's a very tough negotiator. I've been watching her over the last couple of days. She's a tough negotiator. She's a very, very smart and determined person. I can tell you there are a lot of people that are looking up now saying, gee whiz, you know, she left a lot of people in her wake. She's a, a very smart, very tough, very capable person. And uh, I would much rather have her as my friend than my enemy. That I can tell you. Did I say nice things about Theresa May, please? 
I said very good things. Uh, thank, thank you very much for saying that. No, I said very good things about her. And she's a total professional because when I saw her this morning, I said, I want to apologize because I said such good things about you. She said, don't worry. It's only the press. I thought that was very, I thought that was very professional. I might- God, he is so great. He is so awesome. He's the best. He really is. And um, so I'm glad that meeting went well. They got a lot established. A lot established um, when they uh, met for uh, two days, uh, right before Trump, obviously, we know, uh, flew to the big event, which was meeting with Putin. Uh, I will play, um, I want to play a clip real quick, a a few clips of, uh, you know, just of the, uh, you know, Trump. um, I want to play the whole recap of when, when our special caller comes in of the event. But I do have a few interviews that Trump did with Hannity, uh, some small clips, and Tucker uh, that I want to play uh, regarding the summit. Um, let's see here. Uh, one, three. To me, the most important issue is uh, the nuclear issue, because I know President Obama said global warming is our biggest problem. And I would say that, no, it's nuclear warming is our biggest problem by a factor of about five million uh, the nuclear problem, we have to make sure, we have to be very careful. And, you know, if you look at Russia and the United States, that's 90% of the nuclear weapons. So and nuclear we power. start doing something and working on other countries. And he also said he wants to be very helpful with North Korea. We're doing well with North Korea. We have time. Um, there's no rush. You know, it's been going on for many years. After the press conference today, the president sat down with us for an interview and a lot to say, not just about Russia, but primarily about immigration and its effect on Europe. Here's part of it. The Democrats want open borders, which is basically saying we want open borders, we want crime. Why do you think they want that? Uh, Maybe it's a political philosophy that they grew up with. Maybe they learned it at school. Maybe they're fools. I don't know. The full extended Great. interview airing tomorrow night at 8 p.m. It's interesting. Tune in then. Um, I do want to welcome, though, our special guest to the show. Um, he is U.S. intelligence expert, political strategist, director of Jihad Watch, and best-selling author Robert Spencer. How are you? Just great. Thanks, Roy. How are you? Good to have you on. This is your first time on the show. Uh, you have a very, uh, you know, impressive background. You've, you've been around for a while. You've done a lot of great things. Um, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> I mean, what, you know, there's, there's a lot of accomplishments there. And I know that you're, uh, you know, promoting this new book of yours. It's doing very well. And uh, being, you know, being the director of Jihad Watch, I mean, that sounds very, uh, you know, incredible. I want, I want to hear a lot about that tonight. Um, but, uh, God, man, good to have you on. Um, Thank you. I want to start, the, we were just talking about um, Trump and Putin, obviously, you know, the big headlines, uh, uh, you, know, at, you know, it was, you know, the liberal media, just like I predicted on my show last week, uh, was going to make up some sort of phony narrative or some sort of ridiculous uh, you know, uh, you know, plot to, uh, you know, spew to their viewers. And, uh, you know, they did. I was right. And uh, now they're calling everything treason, you know, with what Trump did with Putin, sit, just sitting down, having a meeting. They're saying treason, treason, treason. I mean, 
it's absolutely like it's it's ridiculous. It's absurd. It, it's something that these people, you know, can't and they're hypocrites as well. Because if you look back at all of these foreign leaders that have sat down with past presidents, I mean, what's there's no difference here. I mean, this is protocol. This is trying to make peace with Russia. This is trying to create lucrative opportunities. This is trying to create an ally that could be strongly utilized if we needed it, especially in a certain war situation or, you know, and, and there's so many, there's so many other, uh, you know, positives uh, to this uh, that factor into it. It's trade, you know, um, and I want to play, I, I really want to, you know, get to, uh, you know, everything about you, but real quick, I want to play um, a clip of just the recap of the Trump-Putin meeting. And uh, then I want to get your guys' thoughts um, real quick. 2-4. Yesterday we made significant progress toward addressing some of the worst conflicts on Earth. So when I met with President Putin for about two and a half hours, we talked about numerous things. And among those things uh, are the problems that you see in the Middle East, where they're very much involved, we're very much involved. I entered the negotiations with President Putin from a position of tremendous strength. Our economy is booming, and our military is being funded $700 billion this year, $716 billion next year. It will be more powerful as a military than we've ever had before. President Putin and I addressed the range of issues, starting with the civil war in Syria, and need for humanitarian aid and help for people in Syria. We also spoke of Iran and the need to halt the nuclear ambitions and the destabilizing activities taking place in Iran. As most of you know, we ended the Iran deal, which was one of the worst deals anyone could imagine, and that's had a major impact on Iran, and it's substantially weakened Iran, and we hope that at some point Iran will call us and we'll maybe make a new deal or we maybe won't. But Iran is not the same country that it was five months ago, that I can tell you. They're no longer looking so much to the Mediterranean and the entire Middle East. They've got some big problems that they can solve, probably much easier if they deal with us. So we'll see what happens. But we did discuss Iran. We discussed Israel and the security of Israel, and President Putin is very much involved now with us in a discussion with Bibi Netanyahu on working something out with surrounding Syria, and Syria, and specifically with regards to the security and long-term security of Israel. A major topic of discussion was North Korea and the need for it to remove its nuclear weapons. Russia has assured us of its support. President Putin said he agrees with me 100 percent and they'll do whatever they have to do to try and make it happen. Discussions are ongoing and they're going very, very well. Uh, we have no rush for speed. The sanctions are remaining. Uh, the hostages are back. Uh, there have been no tests. There have been no rockets going up for a period of nine months. And I think uh, the relationships are very good. So we'll see how that goes. We have no uh, time limit. We have no speed limit. We have, uh, we're just going through the process. But the relationships are very good. President Putin 
uh, is going to be involved in the sense that he is he is with us. He would like to see that happen. Perhaps the most important issue we discussed at our meeting prior to the press conference was the reduction of nuclear weapons throughout the world. The United States and Russia have 90%, as I said, and we can have a big impact. But nuclear weapons is, I think, the greatest threat of our world today. And they're a great nuclear power. We're a great nuclear power. Uh, we have to do something about nuclear. And so that was a matter that we discussed actually in great detail, and President Putin agrees with me. The matters we discussed are profound in their importance and have the potential to save millions of lives. I understand the many disagreements between our countries, but I also understand that dialogue and the, uh, when you think about it, dialogue with Russia or dialogue with other countries, but dialogue with Russia in this case, where we've had such poor relationships for so many years, dialogue is a very important thing and it's a very good thing. So if we get along with them, great. If we don't get along with them, then we won't get along with them. But I think we have a very good chance of having some very positive things. I thought that the meeting that I had with President Putin was uh, really strong. I think that they were willing to do things that, frankly, I wasn't sure whether or not they would be willing to do. And we'll be having future meetings, and we'll see whether or not that comes to fruition. But we had a very, very good meeting. So there you go. There you have it. Well said. Very well said. Um, I do have some clips up from the press conference with him and Putin that I do want to play later on. But, Robert, I, um, it's great to have you here. Uh, Josh and Valerie, I want to make sure you're on the line, my co-host. Yes, I'm here. here. And actually, I've read a, uh, several of Robert's books, um, and I'm very familiar with uh, with the subject matter of jihad, and I, I have many, many questions, but I'll let you start us off. Wow, Robert, one of my co-hosts is your, one of your fans. Wow, I did not even know that. And Valerie's actually, <laughs> I'm in Arizona. Valerie's actually uh, works out of Washington, D.C., so. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate hearing that. Yeah, and uh, Josh, are you there as well, buddy? Yeah, I'm here. Josh out of Ohio. Okay, Josh out of Ohio is there. Excellent. Um, so, so Robert, let's let's get to you know your thoughts on this whole uh, you know President Putin, um, you know Trump, you know summit, them meeting. Um, obviously, you probably think the liberal media turning this into a whole treason, bull, uh, you know bullshit fake narrative is absolutely absurd, just like I do, and uh, we knew it was coming. Um, and uh, but overall, you know, there's there's a lot of people praising Trump for this, but you know, we have some uh, rhinos and everybody on the left, uh, you know, saying he colluded, he colluded. But uh, your thoughts? Go ahead. Well, it's ridiculous. The question is whether he committed some act of betrayal by not accepting the assessment of some of the intelligence, not actually all, but some of the intelligence organizations in the U.S. that the Russians tried to interfere with the election. And, of course, he's denied that there was collusion all along. He said that there was a uh, witch hunt on to try to discredit him and destroy his presidency. This is all pretty obvious when we look at Peter Strzok and his texts to, uh, to the other agent, Lisa Page, 
about how they were going to prevent Trump from becoming president and so on. It's clear that the investigation into Russian collusion is only a way to discredit and destroy Trump. So what is he going to think when they're asking him they're standing with Putin if he uh, is going to scold Putin for the collusion? He doesn't think there was collusion, and there wasn't. So uh, the idea that he somehow has capitulated to Putin by taking his word over that of the uh, intelligence communities in the U.S. when the intelligence organizations in the U.S. are obviously corrupt, compromised, and partisan at this point and right. are, are not disinterested, patriotic organizations that are uh, trying to get to the bottom of this uh, investigation and find the truth for the good of all Americans, but are just trying to destroy the president because they don't like his politics. I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that he didn't just uh, take their word, and I'm a little bit disappointed today, actually, that he went back, walked it back a bit and said that uh, he accepted the findings of the intelligence in, in, uh, organizations. I don't think he puts a whole lot of stock in them. I don't think he takes them seriously, and I think that obviously he said that today because he was under pressure. But uh, the the idea that there was some heinous crime committed in the Trump-Putin press conference is simply more of this far-left attempt to uh, cancel the 2016 election and destroy the Trump presidency. Oh, 100%. I mean, you you nailed it. You put you 100% spot on. I mean, it's it's just, you know, and I and I look at this, you know, it's just another thing for the liberals to obsess about and be angry about. Every week it's something new. They have something to bitch about every week. Last week it was, you know, the um Supreme Court nom- nominee uh, Brett, um uh, K- Kavanaugh and uh the week before it's the kids at the border. You know, it's always something new with these people. And he like I said many times, Trump could cure cancer and they would still uh, say, you know, well, what about diabetes? What about, what about, you know, AIDS? What about, can you do that? Too? Like, the, and they're never satisfied, no matter what. There is malicious activity and, per, you know, pursuit and, and, and just, you know, lots of uh, targeting and so much anger and rage towards this president. Um, and some of the threats I've seen on social media towards this president, some of the, I mean, it's outrageous. And there's actually a new, um, a new picture up today on a, um, a, um, a, uh, God, where did it, what was that? Where was it? Oh, on a window in a storefront in Portland, Oregon of Trump getting his cut, uh, his, his throat, uh, the, his head cut off, decapitated. Um, and it's absolutely sickening and, and should absolutely uh, be, you know, t- you know, addressed and, and uh, you know, taken, taken action on. But we all know uh, Portland, Oregon is highly liberal and they encourage Antifa and the extremists and the radicalization uh, from the leftists, leftists, these, these evil, uh, these evil liberals that, you know, I mean, they're the bigots. They're the fascists. They're the ones that are, you know, doing all. I mean, it's so it, it bothers me so much. And you know, it, it, it's it, it's so you described it in a sense that you know we're and and I and I and I look at it like this. I mean, we're looking we're looking at something positive. I mean, this is something you know people are making. 
overly making a big deal of. I mean, they're, they're saying that Trump didn't hold Putin accountable enough. I mean, we have to look in the mirror here, and we have to, you know, look at look at the big bigger picture, which is the FBI, the, the FBI, and the DOJ. I mean, they could have been. They, I mean, they're just as corrupt as anybody in Russia. I mean, some of the stuff they've done. I mean, and you know, we see the left media and we see the liberal media uh, never talk about that. Obviously, um, you know, they want to coddle the Obama agenda and the liberal uh, agenda, which is sickening. Um, but you know, it, it's so it's such a double standard. You know what I mean? Oh, there's no doubt about it. The, there's no uh, fairness in this at all. This, the, one of the best things I think that may, became abundantly clear during the 2016 presidential election was yeah. that the, there's no vestige of fairness in the news media. It's just a propaganda organ for the yeah. uh, Democratic Party and for the far left. And yeah. the truth has to be found elsewhere. And, and where did he commit treason? I mean, this is so crazy. This is the most outrageous thing I've heard. I mean, it's all it's I've, they they say all these different things. You know, there's nothing he did on that stage that you know should be looked at as outrage or there's nothing crazy that happened. I mean, you know, Trump did what he does best. I mean. I don't see the problem here, but there's even people on the right that have some somewhat of a problem with it because uh, they they claim and, and they view it as he was, you know, sucking up to Putin and basically praising Putin, which that's not what I saw at all. I basically saw a president that wanted to become friends and wanted to become, you know, have partnerships and, you know, have a future with a country that's very powerful and could bring a lot of benefits and, and stuff to the table. You know, I saw a president that wanted to welcome a guy with open arms and have a peace offering and, and see what could be done because we know we're dealing with the, the world's best business negotiator. I mean, he can, get, he can do anything. He can bring a, anybody into a room and make magic happen. I mean, the, the, the Trump is, the, uh, is a miracle worker. I've said it many times on my show. Um, but what, your thoughts, though, I mean, what do you think? The uh, Democratic Party – has never been able to accept defeat. It always has charged that there's some chicanery. Uh, the 2000 yeah. election is a good example, but also going right. back even farther, uh, they blamed something else. I remember Dan yeah. Rather saying in 1980 that the American people have had this temper tantrum, and it's it's never their fault. It's never that their ideas are 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 not popular I and have been rejected. That guy is the biggest victim player crybaby. Yes, indeed. And so this is just more of the same. And they're getting increasingly desperate because the president actually is very successful and he has high approval ratings despite ninety five percent negative press coverage. And so they're really uh, getting shrill and hysterical and this charging treason and calling on him to resign because of a press conference, because of some things said in a press conference. It's, it's so ridiculous. If you consider, for example, treason means giving aid and comfort to the enemy. And Look what Obama, uh, that, look what Obama the, did. Look, look what Obama did on hot mic. You know, well, after, you after this election, I'll have some more flexibility. Tell, tell, tell Vladimir that. You remember that? 
yeah, and not just words either, but also shipping pallets of cash, billions of dollars to a regime so that crow- chants death to America. That's giving aid and comfort to yep. the enemy in a very direct ma- manner. It's it's abs- and the stuff he got away with, the stuff that they covered up for, I call him Barack Hussein Osama, but the stuff they've covered up for him and have let him get away with basically is murder, Obama. I mean, they've let him get away with murder. They've let Obama get away with murder. Well, I don't know, but certainly he got away with a great deal. I don't mean literally. I don't mean mean literally murder. I'm just saying with everything he got away with, it's it's terrible. Yes. It's a a glaring double standard. There's not really any free press in the United States. A free press would give a... uh, uh, an even hand to all sides of an issue, but our press yeah. is just an agenda-driven propaganda outfit. Right. No, absolutely. Josh, I know you want to speak on this. Go ahead. And then Valerie. Yeah, and you know, in the uh, in the great words of Dan Perkins, I'm going to say something here that you you might not like as much. It's going to be a little bit left field, but um, honestly, treason is absolute. Yeah, treason is absolute bullshit. Uh, there's no tr- – I mean, the fact that it's just the next buzzword, basically. You know, they said, I said quick, uh, last real week quick, on the Josh. show. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Josh, there's nothing he said that was treason. I can't figure it out. Like, I watched it over and over, and I'm trying to figure out where are the Democrats getting this whole ideology in their head that he committed treason. But keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's the next buzzword. Like I said last week, you know, the current buzzword was shame. Now it's, it's a talking treason. point. It's, it's no different. I will say I was very disappointed uh, in Trump really for the first time, honestly, because of the way that he kind of apologized uh, for the way that America and Russia have, you know, treated each other in the past. I wasn't the biggest – I'm not the biggest fan of a president going to another country and apologizing when I feel like it's not warranted. You know, Obama did it with Japan. Uh, you know, apologizing for us dropping bombs uh, during World War II, which, you know, with absolute, which is way more egregious, don't get me wrong. But I, I, was, I was very disappointed that he came in and apologized. You know, obviously the United States could have done better, yet, you know, Russia was the aggress, aggressor in all these, you know, circumstances. And could the United States have prevented some of these circumstances? Sure, but you can't yeah. blame the United States for right. not cleaning up the whole entire world when we have a tyrannical oppressor like Putin. And I think you brought up a good point real quick. I want, I want Robert to speak on this, and then I want Valerie, obviously. Um, real quick, though, Josh, you bring up a point where, you know, Obama knew about this whole election meddling Long before he knew about the and you know we all know liberals do whatever they can to blame Trump for everything and all their problems and this is something they put on Trump, but Obama knew about this but he thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election, and you know it's just it's one of those things where this is this is this is not Trump's fault and I believe Trump's apologizing because Robert Mueller and, and the Obama admin have wrongly accused of Vladimir Putin and Russia of doing certain things that they did not do. Um, I mean, I mean, I know they're guilty of certain things. Don't get me wrong. There are no angels and they're not, they're not angels in Russia. You know, Putin's done his fair share of evil shit, but the Obama admin, the Democrats and the liberal media have blamed Russia. I believe for certain, uh, for 
I'd say a good amount of things that they did not do, but there's, there, there may be some – I mean, there's obviously some things they did do. But that's what I believe Trump was addressing and apologizing for, but I could be wrong. You know? and, and obviously, you know, maybe some past leaders uh, that weren't so uh, willing to listen. You know, Trump's always willing to listen. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's an, a, another thing he was apologizing for. But, Robert, go ahead. Uh, go ahead in regard to what? I want to I want to hear your thoughts on you know him him apologizing. Oh, and apologizing. Well, yeah, he shouldn't have done that. It's never good to apologize because it acknowledges that your enemies have some point that you were wrong and they were right, and he should never grant them that because they're predatory. They're out for blood. They want to cut his throat figuratively. Well, probably literally too. And he just hands them ammunition by doing that by walking back any of his remarks. And nothing he said was so terrible that it right. was beyond being defended, and it ought to actually uh, – he should have stood by it. He's usually uh, tougher than that, and so I don't really think that this is going to be something that is going to have a lasting effect. I mean, of course, the uh, left is entirely hysterical, and they will try to remove him from office if they can, and they'll try to run on this in the uh, – uh, 2018 elections to try to get enough yeah. people there to remove him from office. But as far as he's yeah. concerned, I expect that he'll just go on his plans and as long as he can. But I mean, I, I, you know, I think Robert Mueller, you know, is more evil than Putin in certain regards. I mean, you look at some of the stuff they do at this FBI and this DOJ, it's as corrupt as can be. Yes. You know, no I, doubt about that. I mean, do do you agree with me? Some of the stuff they planned and orchestrated. Yeah, these people are trying to subvert the democratic process, trying to subvert the nature of the United States as a republic in which there is free and open dissent from the establishment line. This is the Robert Mueller is the establishment, and uh, and his his allies are the establishment trying to stamp out dissent and trying to make sure that the voice of the people is not heard or respected, and so. There is no, uh, there's no good in his investigation. It is, as the president has said repeatedly, a witch hunt and uh, one that is only designed to discredit him and just to try to trump up facts, try to trump up fake news in order to justify their discrediting and destroying the president. Yeah. And Robert, you know, Robert Mueller, Valerie, go ahead real quick. Valerie? Oh, sorry. I, I said I think yeah. I think it's really backfired a lot on the Democrats. As much as they've tried to discredit Trump, um, you know, it's really difficult because he's doing what he said he would do, number one. And number two, because he bypasses the media completely and goes straight to the American people with Twitter. And I think the fact that he's able to do that has given him so much more credibility and really taken a lot away from the, the media and the press in general. I think they've really, um, you know, they're trying to create something out of nothing like they did with the dossier. And, and, and Americans now can see through that. Now, now, Robert, let me ask you this. Do you think in a lot of ways Robert Mueller could be using Putin just as a, just as someone, just as kind of a, you know, obviously Putin's not going to get in trouble, but kind of a fall guy in a sense, kind of a distraction. You know, Putin's maybe yeah. not. Don't you agree? I mean, Putin's not the entirety of the problem. 
if at all. No, look, the, the left has never – they never cared about the Russians during the Cold War when the Soviet Union right. was actively working to subvert and damage American interests around the world. They never right. cared. They ridiculed the people who did care. And right. they uh, – even still, their celebrated martyrs and heroes are people who were communists <laughs> in the 50s who were identified by Joe McCarthy. And, and now at, and suddenly at, they've yeah, – they're, they've completely changed, and they've decided that there's a huge threat from Russia. It's kind of comical, but it's really the only thing that they can find that they can beat Donald Trump with, and that's all it's all about. Yeah, and, and look at – you know, look at – there's pictures of Chuck Schumer eating ice cream with Putin a couple of years ago. You got Hillary with, hanging out with Putin. You know, you got all these different things, and, you know, it's amazing how the Uranium One deal, all these different scandals that, you know – uh, and the, the Hillary, you know, Hillary and these Democrats have gotten away with. Imagine if a Republican would have done something like that. I mean, it, it's such the, the double standard is unbelievably ridiculous. And you, you, you get people think that Putin wanted Trump to win the election. I don't think so. Putin wanted Hillary because Putin wanted more uranium one kind of favors. I guarantee you. Yes. I mean, what, what, because you know, Putin knows Trump's going to hold him accountable. So. I, you know, the, the Democrats, this narrative and this whole uh, ideology that they have in their, in their minds that, you know, Russia is, is, the, is the enemy and Russia did this, it's, it's, it's beyond delusional, you know? Yes, it is. No doubt about uh, it. Absolutely. Hey, Robert, so, you know, tell us all about you. You're a very popular guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I see uh, I only have a couple minutes left. But in any case, okay. I can be found at jihadwatch.org, and I have a new book out called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, which is the only book of its kind, the first book in the English language to give the whole story about jihad all around the world. There are tremendous implications for public policy in this book, and I hope that uh, people will pick it up. It'll, it shatters a lot of historical myths and will open a lot of eyes. Hey, Robert, can you take about five minutes for some questions? Uh, yeah, about five. I, I I do have to go though. Okay, about Laurie, can you know I you ask to... one? Yeah, yeah go I've ahead. I've got bunches of questions. Uh, first, I wanted to ask you about um, with regard to uh, radicalization and jihad. We have uh, many prisoners in our in U.S. prisons right now that are getting ready to be released. And as far as I understand, there is no de-radicalization program or any kind of program for that matter. For, for those that are radicalized, that are preparing to become part of our society after they have served their time, what can be done about this? Well, their de-radicalization programs have never worked. They've failed all around the world. They've failed in Saudi Arabia, in Indonesia, in France, everywhere they've been tried. Because the de-radicalization, it's really a scam. Uh, the people who run the de-radicalization programs, they tell them, they tell the authorities in question that they're going to teach the jihadis the true peaceful understanding of the Quran. But the Quran actually teaches warfare against unbelievers. It tells Muslims to wage war against unbelievers and to work to subjugate them under the rule of Islamic law. So mm -hmm. there isn't any true peaceful Quran that the de-radicalizers can actually teach. And so the whole thing is based on a false premise to start with. And there have mm -hmm. been so many stories of de supposedly de-radicalized uh, Muslims returning to the jihad because they're 
convinced they read their book. If they believe their book, then that's what they're going to do. So the uh, I, the solution in prisons would not be to work for de-radicalization. Mm-hmm. It would be to uh, work to uh, try to discourage these people from holding these views at all. What we do now is actually encourage the ideology that landed the jihadis in prison in the first place. I mean, they read the Quran. The Quran tells them to kill unbelievers. They kill unbelievers. They go to jail. What do they do in jail? They give them a Quran. They let them go to Muslim prayer. And so it only reinforces the thing that got them there in the first place. That's, 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 and, that's nuts. Agreed. And, that's, and, and the other issue is they have these imams that are radical that they're supposed to call to if they want to talk about religion. And it just That's perpetuates thing. it. Yeah, that for a long time, uh, I believe actually it might still be the case, the only organizations that were approved to train chaplains for the prison system, Muslim chaplains for the prison system, were groups that were connected to the Muslim Brotherhood and to Hamas. And so you exactly. had these, uh, talk about in terms of radicalization, you had radicalized imams going in and radicalizing the prison system, and it's all being done with the approval of the prison authorities. It's, it was absolutely absurd. And this really hasn't been changed because there's not a general recognition of the fact that Islam's not really a religion of peace, and so to bring in an imam is not going to be just the same thing as bringing in a priest or a rabbi or whoever. And uh, there's no recognition of that among American authorities, and so we keep making the same mistakes again and again and again. Hey, Robert, quick question for you. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rory. Real quick. So, Robert, you know, what's very impressive is you're the director of Jihad Watch, and you've also done seminars, uh, led them on Islam for the FBI, the United States Central Command, the United States Army Command, and General Staff College. Uh, So you – so please tell our audience a little bit real quick about that you're the director of Jihad Watch and what you do there and the seminars you teach to the FBI and all these uh, big time uh, you know entities yeah the uh, Jihad Watch is a news and commentary organization that is designed to raise awareness of the nature and the magnitude of the Jihad threat and so the the primary thing we have is the website which is uh, obviously a news and commentary website you will get news there at jihadwatch.org that you will not get anywhere else of jihad activity in the United States and around the world and commentary to help you to break through the media lies and obfuscation and oftentimes also the lies and obfuscations that come from law enforcement officials themselves and uh, you will get the truth about jihad activity and as far as training the FBI and military groups uh, in 2011, Barack – I did that for about five years, and in 2011, Barack Obama fired me because uh, 57 Muslim and allied organizations wrote to John Brennan. Of course, he later became the head of the CIA, and they demanded that I be fired from this position because uh, they didn't say – they couldn't say I was saying anything inaccurate, but they said that it was offensive to Muslims. And so it was offensive to Muslims that had to go in Barack Obama's uh, training. The fact is that in the training that Barack Obama mandated for the FBI and other uh, organizations, there's no mention of Islam or jihad in connection with terrorism. It's as if there is no Islamic terrorism as far as the Obama establishment is concerned. And of course, these are the same people we've been talking about who uh, 
are going after Trump now, the same deep state, the same FBI that is so clueless and compromised. Yeah, and and, and that's the thing, you know, you you got um, you're absolutely right. I got Tim. Tim, go ahead with your question. Hey, Robert, uh, thanks for the uh, taking the question. I have a question. Have you uh, heard? Is there any truth to the rumors that John Brennan converted to Wahhabism? Uh, I'll tell you, this act, is the story about like that. Yes. yes. The story about that, and then I really do have to go, but the story about this is uh, John Guandolo is a former FBI agent, and uh, I know John very well. I think uh, he's uh, uh, a great patriot, and he's done a lot of great things. And he says that when he was in the Bureau, it was an open secret that Brennan had converted to Islam while he was in Saudi Arabia. And there were many people who knew it. And what's interesting about it is is that this has been floating around for years. Brennan has never denied it. And the press, being so clueless and compromised themselves, they never ask him. But it does seem like if you look at what Brennan has said and done, there doesn't seem to be any reason to doubt it. It does go along with everything that he has said and done in praising jihad as a concept, uh, speaking about how it's peaceful. It's just the sort of way that converts to Islam often speak because this is the kind of thing that they're taught. Yeah, and he's anyway, also folks, a part, so much. member of the uh, Communist Party, but thank you. Yeah, he voted communist in 1976. Anyway, it's been great, and have Ruth, a good evening. Last and, thing, uh, hey, I want to know your books real quick before you go. Yeah, tell everybody where they can find you, all your good stuff. Yeah, um, the uh, website is jihadwatch.org, and I'm at jihadwatchrs on Twitter, and there's a jihadwatch site on Facebook. And then the History of Jihad is the new book. It will be out August 7th but it is already available for pre-order. And uh, as I say, it's the only book of its kind, and I'm hoping it will completely revolutionize the foreign policy establishment. But in any case, it will be very enlightening to anyone who reads it. So thanks again, Hey Robert, have a wonderful Robert, night. Robert, do you know, yeah. Ro- Robert, do you know Kenneth Timmerman? Yes, I do. Fine man. Okay, he's coming on next, so we're very excited uh, to have him on. Excellent. Uh, have you worked Tell with him? Tell him I said hello. Uh, I, we haven't worked together. I, I actually got – he gave me some very good uh, uh, advice and counsel when I wrote a book about Iran a few years back. And uh, he's uh, very knowledgeable about Iran, of course. Very cool. And last last thing, Valerie, you had a five-second question. What do you want to ask him? Oh, you're so nice to ask me, and I, I, I hope I can make it in five seconds. It's a tough question, though. Uh, do you think that there is a comparison between the early 1900s before, between World War I and World War II when people were becoming radicalized in Germany to what's happening today with, regi- with well, regard to Well, certainly there was a lot of anger in Germany after World War I, a lot of resentment, and Hitler was able to channel it. And nowadays jihadis do recruit on the basis of anger and resentment. So there is that, you know, that uh, similarity. Hmm. Thank you. Okay. Interesting. Perfect. Okay. Thank well, you, folks. Ed, have Ro- a great night. Robert Spencer, everybody. Thank you. Have a good night, sir. Thank you for coming on. You too. Thanks. Hey, Robert, we'll have you back on soon. Thank you, Rory. Thank he, you. He's so knowledgeable. He was great. Um, he's just, he's he was a real expert. Yeah, and we will have um, a very uh, popular guy uh, coming on shortly, um, investigator, investigative reporter, war correspondent, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, 
and New York Times bestseller uh, author, New York Times bestselling author Kenneth Timmerman. Uh, Kenneth Timmerman is a very popular guy. I'm very excited to have him on tonight. He'll be on with us for probably about an hour. Um, I know Robert Spencer, he had a, a very quick schedule. He could only come on for a short time. Uh, I wish we had him for longer. But getting back into the Putin thing, Josh, I want you to speak a little bit. I know I haven't gotten to you. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, besides the, the besides the part I was unhappy with him apologizing uh, a little bit there, you know, other than that, you know, I think I think a lot of the stuff that's being you know complained about is is smoke. Um, I didn't see much of I mean that big of a problem with any of it. I thought it was you know just BS in the the media. So, um, I, you know, you gotta meet you gotta meet with these people. And you know, even though I I really do dislike Putin, I think he's an interesting guy. But boy, he uh, he's done some bad things uh, on the humanitarian scale over the years. But you know, you can't just ignore him. If you're the president of the United States, you have to go meet with them. And, um, and to add, I do think that if Putin was going to rig an election, he would have tried to rig it for Hillary because they, I mean, Hillary was, uh, you know, uh, had, had worked with the Russian government before, you know, um, when she was secretary of state had done stuff with them. And uh, it went very well for Russia as, you know, nothing happened uh, to stop Russia during the Obama administration. So, I think, I, you know, I do believe it's very disingenuous of uh, the media to try to act like Putin would rig the election for Trump or that Trump and Putin are friends. I don't think two people that are that powerful for that long could ever be friends. They're enemies just because of the jobs that they have. So, Yeah, very well said, very well said. And uh, uh, Tim, Tim, go ahead. I want you to speak on a little bit about uh, what your thoughts on the Putin-Trump meeting was. Obviously, uh, Tim, you're a very big Rand Paul, Ron Paul fan. They praised the uh, the uh, the whole meeting, and uh, you know they were one of the uh, couple Republicans that uh, liked it. And uh, you know there were obviously other Republicans, but there were so many rhinos that opposed it. Yeah, and uh, the comments on your last uh, Josh Josh's comments. Uh, he he had mentioned uh, John Driver. Now I forgot what I was going to say. He uh, yeah, I was trying to figure out what. Uh, no, yeah, by the way, I think it was. I thought it was a great press conference, and I was watching it live. Uh, you know, I, I think that the media is just, in, you know, you know, you can see, you know, all these rats coming out from their, their corners. And how? Oh, I know. I know the point I was going to bring is why would it? Why would Putin want Trump to win? I mean, does, does Putin really want you know uh, America first? Does Putin really want you know us to have our Second Amendment? Does Putin really want uh, you know us to protect our culture? I mean, if, if he thought Putin wanted to destroy America, why wouldn't he want Hillary? So that so that was the point I was going to make, and I just forgot. Uh, but no, I love the whole thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, they want to create this whole atmosphere of who we're allowed to talk to and who we're not allowed to talk to. And and really, one of the very first videos I ever made on Facebook was in September 2016 when I made a video about the. Russian and uh, Clinton connection, and this again, this was like before you know the Russian thing was even in the news. Because the number one thing that the Clintons do after following these guys for a while is whatever they're guilty of is what they accuse their enemies of. So that way you can't accuse them of it because they already accused you of it first. So 
you know, it doesn't matter that they had, you know, $135 million went into a foundation. It doesn't matter that, you know, Putin revealed there was another $400 million we didn't even know about. And, you know, it doesn't matter that, you know, they scoffed at the idea of, you know, Putin being a problem in 2012. Mitt Romney was at a debate, and, and I think Obama made a comment along the lines of, you know, the 1980s called and want their foreign policy back, he made a joke about that. And, you know, if you're really that concerned about Russia, then, you know, why were you emailing state secrets on an unsecured server? And there's just so much hypocrisy. And you know of all people that, you know, I have praised Trump when he's done some good things. I have called him out when there's things I haven't liked. Uh, yeah. But right now, I, I see no problem at all with trying to stop World War Three, And I just hate how the media is trying to let us know what we are allowed and what we aren't allowed to talk about. And, you know, they want to make Putin out to be like a dictator. And, you know, you know, two days before, they were bitching at Trump for not, you know, bowing down to the queen when, you know, what's, what's the queen? I mean, the queen's more dictator than, than, than uh, Putin, if you want to, like, really. Right. And if you get into the whole lineage of, you know, the queen, you know, the royal family is actually the right. direct descendants of, uh, actually, this is crazy. This sounds absolutely nuts. But the royal family are actually direct descendants of Vlade Tepe, who's better known as Dracula. So, I mean, their, their lineage goes back, their, before the name of Windsor, it goes back to Saxe-Coburg Gotha, and they were then in Germany, before Germany, Transylvania. Uh, there's videos of Prince Charles even, you know, talking about how they spent half the year in Ukraine, and, or sorry, in Romania. And, uh, so, yeah, there's just so much hypocrisy, and, and, you know, the fake news is something I've been exposing you know, even before that was a, a term that was in the media, uh, you know, that I, I was using that term even before. And I'm just, just yeah. glad to see so many people out there exposing this for, for what it is. And, uh, yeah, I wish I had some popcorn yesterday while I was watching it because I loved it. Right, right. Now. Yeah, well said, Tim, yeah. And, you know, um, I mean, it, it, it it's one of those things where, you know, it it it, 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 it opens so many doors. There's so many opportunities to be utilized with with Russia. We, we have them as an ally. They're a powerhouse. You know, and uh, Putin knows that uh, Trump is not screwing around and uh, it's all business, you know? Yeah, if you could turn, sound, if you could turn the sound off in the background, you could do that, man. Okay, I'll, I'll just I'll mute it whenever I'm not talking. Okay, um, but anyways, yeah, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, you know, Trump is, is doing things that no other leader has ever, ever even, you know, could dream of. You know, nobody could carry jo- Trump's jockstrap. Um, you know, this this was a success, bottom line, period. Um, our big guest is coming on right now, and I'm very excited to welcome him. Um I want to welcome our very special guest tonight, uh, investigative reporter, war correspondent, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, and New York Times bestselling author, Kenneth Timmerman. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, uh, uh, Rory. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure having you here. And Matter of fact, guess who we just had on before you? Uh, Robert Spencer. Oh no way! Okay, yes, we're good friends, and uh, we have plowed some of those the uh, same fields here. Yeah, yeah, that's what he was telling me. He he kind of was, uh, you know, 
uh, mentioning that you were a mentor to him. You taught him a lot. You basically introduced him to the field. It's it's uh, he has done absolutely amazing work and has been uh, um, I think really instrumental in changing large numbers of uh, the attitude of large numbers of Americans towards uh, Islam. Yeah, and it, you know, and you and you are. Uh... You know, you've done a lot. I mean, you've, uh, you know, lived uh, a very impressive, uh, you know, profound, uh, you know, life in, in, in the sense of your resume and background. You know, I want you, and I, and, I, and I plan to have you for a long time tonight. I got a lot of questions for you. Um, but I want, I want you to tell everybody, um, you know, about your background, you know, about just how it started you know, everything that, how it all transpired, you know, just, just everything from start to finish, because it's, it's very uh, interesting and very unique. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, look, I'm a shoe leather journalist. I started off as a war correspondent in Beirut in 1982, uh, went down there uh, as a stringer for a uh, English language uh, radio network in Europe. Uh, thought at that point I was based in uh, Paris. Uh, the, I was a left bank leftist, if you wish, and um, <laughs> thought like most of the French and European press that the, the horrible Israelis had uh, were doing terrible things to the wonderful Palestinians. And as soon as I stepped foot into West Beirut, despite all of my letters of introduction from the Palestinians in Europe, I was promptly taken hostage uh, by Fatah loyal to Arafat. And wow. uh, there was no uh, kind of getting around that uh, hard education. They dumped me into a uh, underground cell with 16 other people in the darkness where I spent 24 days uh, essentially getting bombed day in and day out. I uh, rediscovered my Christian faith there. I uh, felt the presence of Jesus with me who sort of saved me in the uh, literally pulled me out of the darkness into the light, uh, and it uh, profoundly changed my life and uh, uh, also began a, a love affair with the Middle East. You know, instead of uh, turning away and uh, running away from it all, I kept going back and kept going back. And, and just a couple of months after that, uh, I made my first trip to the West Bank, stayed with Palestinians, uh, stayed in refugee camps and Palestinians, and then spent many, many, uh, made many trips to Israel, covered both sides of that conflict. Uh, I am, call myself now, I think of myself now as a Christian Zionist. Uh, I, I deeply believe in the uh, righteousness of the uh, re um, re revival of the Jewish people in Israel. Uh, and as a Christian, I believe that uh, the Jewish people are my ancestors, if you wish. They are, uh, you know, Jesus was a rabbi. He, 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 came, he came out of a Jewish traditions uh, and Jewish faith and the Jewish law. Uh, and our faith is, uh, as Christians, my faith as a Christian is based on that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I know. Uh, I know. Josh, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, boy, I, I I'm gonna kind of set you up for you to be able to ramble here with this question. But 
really t- go into detail about, you know, because I'm also a Christian, and I would really like for you to go into detail about how, like, what really happened to you from being in that prison cell for 24 days. Like, explain, explain everything that happened to you physically and kind of went through your head mentally that led to that conversion. Well, uh, well, it wasn't a conversion. I was a Christian. I've been, I was brought up a, a, a Christian, but, you know, my faith was weak. And uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, when, when, <laughs> when you're trying to find the most stable corner of a room underground where the wall, when the walls are all shaking and above you the building is collapsing and the cement, after it's been blown up into the air, is sifting down like sand – uh, onto the uh, ruins up above you, um, you know it's it's you're, you you feel pretty close to your maker, and <laughs> you these are life and death moments, and this is when I really understood, um, you know that that Jesus was there with me, he was holding my hand, uh, and uh, he did not intend for me to die there underground. He had some other purpose now. You know, I've been spending the rest of my life trying to discover what that purpose is, but certainly one part of that purpose was to write this book, ISIS Begins, about the persecuted church in Iraq and as a witness to the persecuted church in Iraq. Um, and I started going to northern Iraq. I was in, in Iraq many, many times uh, earlier on, but I started going to northern Iraq uh, after the U.S. liberation in 2007, first on reporting trips and then on uh, mission trips to bring aid to uh, Iraqi Christians who had been displaced and had been persecuted. Uh, and and the, the wealth of that material and the depth of their experiences just marked me uh, tremendously. And I think that's one of the things that uh, uh, God had in mind for me uh, to do, was to, to, to witness their suffering, uh, they suffered because of their Christian faith, and um, I believe that uh, he called on me to write this book to to transfer that in, that that knowledge, that experience, to other people for whom I mean most Americans can't conceive of the kind of things that have happened uh, with ISIS in northern Iraq. Christians being crucified, people who have their their babies stolen from them and and cooked and served back to them on platters of rice. Uh, I mean, just horrible, horrible things that are done all in the name of Islam uh, against Christians with the goal of driving them out completely. One of my friends, John Eibner of Christian Solidarity International, calls it religious side, religious side, not genocide, but religious side, an effort by these jihadi Muslim groups to totally eradicate the Christian population of northern Iraq. So, Ken, can I ask you really quickly? This is Valerie, Ken, and I live in Maryland, and I know that you ran for office um, in in the state here, and I'm very familiar with a lot of your work. Yeah, please speak on that Uh, too, Ken, after she asks you the question. I want to hear about that too. I want. I wanted to ask you about Christians all over the Middle East. I mean, really, you know, it's not in the news very much, and it should be much more than it is. You know, what is the United States doing to help these Christians? I know Glenn Beck has done a lot. He's raised money and that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. But what is the government doing, or what should they be doing? 
Well, I, I'll tell you a story. Is that uh, uh, on one of my earlier trips in uh, uh, 08, I think it was, we came back. Uh, I was with a group named uh, uh, the Religious Freedom uh, Coalition, uh, headed by Bill Murray. And uh, we had encountered a number of Christian interpreters who had risked their lives for the U.S. coalition, were promised uh, U.S. immigration visas if they were you know, persecuted or they were threatened. Or, and many of these young men had their names posted on lists that were nailed onto mosques, right? So they were identified. They were targets. Uh, and by the way, that's, their experience gave me the idea for, for the main character of ISIS Begins, who was an Iraqi Christian interpreter. And we, came, we, we discovered that they were not getting those immigration visas. When they went to the U.S. Embassy in Amman, Jordan, they were simply turned away. Uh, when they went to the UNHCR, uh, the United Nations uh, uh, ref, uh, you know, uh, uh, refugee organization, uh, they um, uh, were greeted by Muslim women in hijabs who, once they learned that these young men were Christians, dumped their files into the wastebasket. Um, and so we came back to Washington, and it turned out that the undersecretary of state in charge of uh, refugee matters and human rights was a fellow Marylander named Ellen Sauerbrey. And wow. uh, so we went to go, so we went to go see Ellen and uh, she was a friend of mine, a long-standing friend of mine. And um, well, there you go, you see. <laughs> and Ellen was completely unaware. She was shocked. We told her these stories and, and uh, she was totally shocked. She brought in some of the people working under her and they said, Oh, well, this didn't really happen like that. And they said, oh, well, yes, it did really happen like that. And then we told them chapter and verse. And so she personally intervened, it was my understanding, and got um, uh, a, quite a number of these people in at the end of the Bush administration, a couple thousand of them, I believe, uh, who had been promised uh, immigration papers. Uh, but, of course, you know, once Obama came in, uh, it reverted to uh, the normal and the normal in the State Department is we want Muslims in America. We do not want Christians immigrating, uh, especially Christians from the Middle East. Uh, but we do want – we have open doors for Muslim uh, immigrants. And unfortunately, um, you know, that's, that's the way it has been ever since. But Ellen really deserves a, a, a medal for what she did. Uh, she was uh, malinformed, uh, as President Trump has been about many things by his – the professionals, not the political appointees, but the professionals in the law enforcement or intelligence community, misinformed uh, by things. Uh, and once she learned the truth, she acted. She acted decisively, and I really give her great credit for it. Yeah, very well. Very well said. Very well said. Um, Josh, go ahead. Yeah, and uh, sadly, I'm, I'm going to have to listen back to most of this because I have to get off here soon, so I'm going to have to replay this. But one last question before I have to go. Um, you know, the, the, do, you, do you see a time period of when specifically um, Islam went from more of a religion that no one really talked about to a religion that was popping up in the news because of terrorist attacks and, and for other reasons of what they were doing in their own countries? Uh, where, when did, when did that switch kind of happen, at least in the media's, you know, in the, in the eyes of our media covering it? 
Well, uh, okay, so, so you learn in ISIS begins a lot about the origins of Islam. Islam has always been a terror religion. It is baked into the Quran. It's baked into the prophet Muhammad and his vision of the world, and, and you learn about that from, from authentic historical sources in my book. But in modern times, in recent times, the turning point uh, very clearly, without any equivocation whatsoever, is 1979. 1979 marks the emergence of political Islam in the uh, 20th century, um, even more so than the birth of the Muslim Brotherhood, the end of the caliphate in the early 20s, 1920s. It's 1979 when Islam makes its comeback. Um, so in that year, you have the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and the beginning of an Islamic uh, resistance to the Soviets. You have Khomeini, who takes over, Ayatollah Khomeini, who takes over in Iran and brings an Islamic revival uh, to Iran and an end to U.S. Uh, influence there. And you have the takeover of the great mosque um, in Mecca by uh, indivi an individual who claimed to be the Mahdi, the, uh, the uh, end times um, Messiah type figure. He's not exactly the Messiah, but a Messiah type figure in uh, Muslim eschatology. And these three events really changed uh, the Islamic world dramatically. Number one, they created the Islamic Republic of Iran. I call it the Islamic State of Iran because it's the first modern Islamic state as in ISIS, right? And second, it prompted the Saudis to fund the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and to fund uh, radical Wahhabi mosques all across the world, starting in Pakistan, but also in the United States. And it's only just recently that the Saudis have pulled back from this effort. So you had both Shia Muslim and Sunni Muslim powers with lots of money funding radical Islamic terrorism for really the first time in the 20th century, starting in 1979. Ken, do you believe yeah. that what's going on in Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman, is he really making reforms, or is this just because, it's, because economically they've got so many problems that they've got to bring women into the workforce, but they're really not changing the Wahhabism or the ideology. They're just trying to, to um, change the economics. Well, I have not met, met Mohammed bin Salman, um, uh, but I know people who have, and I have read just amazing in-depth interviews that he's given. Uh, I believe he's nothing short of a revolutionary, uh, a true revolutionary in Saudi Arabia. Wow. He's a, uh, a, a, a leader who, if the radicals don't separate his head from his body, uh, will do yes, another Anwar Sadat. Uh, right, he, who will do amazing things in Saudi Arabia. He is a, he's not just a reformer, he is a revolutionary. When you hear him talk about Wahhabism, uh, he, he's, he has very harsh words for the Wahhabi clerics. Uh, and when he talks about women joining the workforce, it's a real sincere uh, desire to modernize Saudi Arabia. Um, he believes in Islam. He's a, he's a Muslim, absolutely. Uh, uh, but he's also talking about a different type of Islam than we are used to hearing 
from Saudi Arabia. And it's an Islam that is uh, more in keeping uh, with um, those periods of Muslim history where Islam did not seek to conquer other uh, countries, did not seek to impose its will on others, did not seek to establish an Islamic caliphate. Uh, it's, if you wish, you put it in sort of Cold War, war tor- terms, communist terms, it's Islam in one country rather than a world Islamic caliphate. So is he separating the, um, the idea of the Quran with the violence and the terrorism that we, you spoke of at the beginning of this, of this interview? He, he's doing his very best to do so, and uh, it's, a, it's a heck of a challenge. But he's doing his very best to do so. He's very courageous. He's joined by Muhammad al-Sisi in Egypt, who's also trying to do that. And, you know, there have been Muslim reformers uh, at various periods. In Sunni Islam, the, the Reformation or the period of interpretation sort of shut down in the 12th century with Mutazilites. Uh, in mm-hmm. Shiite Islam, it's remained open. I learned about Islam, by the way. I studied Islam in Paris with a dissident Shiite ayatollah in the 1980s, Mehdi Rouhani, and he was an ijtihad. An ijtihad is somebody who has earned the title and the um, authority to interpret Quranic texts, to issue fatwas, uh, and to uh, basically make pronouncements of interpretation of Islam. In Sunni Islam, they don't let you do that. It's, that's haram. There's no interpretation. Right, what, it is Everything Latin. is fixed. Yeah, it's all been fixed. Because so you don't you question God. Mahal, it's not a question about questioning God. No, no, no. no. It's, it's not just it's not questioning, not questioning God. You don't question the Quran. You don't question the received interpretation of the Quran by the Islamic scholars who are with the Prophet at the beginning and the early generations. That's what's happened in Sunni Islam. Shia Islam is different. It, it is a more fluid, more flexible uh, more interpretive, in a way, more Aristotelian uh, doctrine, uh, but it's still Islam, right? And and uh, the Iranians they have created an Islamic state with Sharia at the core of the foundation. So um, uh, this is something that what I find most fascinating about Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia is he really truly. Uh, seems to me to try to be distancing himself and Saudi Arabia from this violent past, uh, this, these violent traditions, and to appeal to the better angels um, uh, of, um, of uh, his fellow Muslims. Do you think the old guard will let him do this? Do I think the what? The old guard will continue to let well, him. That, make that is the que- that, That's the question, uh, Valerie. That, that's absolutely the question. And uh, at this point, as I say, I have not met him personally, and I have not been uh, recently back to Saudi Arabia. I know the foreign minister. I, I've met him uh, a number of times before, um, uh, and he is certainly very forward-leaning, very pro-Western, very anti-Iranian, by the way and is a passionate, articulate uh, advocate in English uh, for um, moderation and uh, freedom uh, against the Iranian regime. But, uh, you know, a pro-Western alliance against Iranian expansionism, Shiite-Iranian expansionism. So uh, for now, I think he's got the upper hand over the old guard. Um, Great. 
and as President Trump says, we'll have to see. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts about what's going on with the grassroots in Iran? Sorry, Rory, I won't ask any more questions after this. <laughs> oh, you're good. You're good. Don't worry. Uh, what are your thoughts about the grassroots um, um, women, particularly in Iran, who are really trying to take over and change um, the country from from the grassroots up? Do you think right. they have right. the power? Well, they don't have power. They don't have the power, but they have tremendous power. They have tremendous influence. Uh, they have influence inside their families. Uh, that's potentially the biggest influence that they have. Uh, I've heard anecdotally stories of uh, women who have uh, gone home to the dinner table, if you wish, at night and berated their older male uh, family members for supporting the Basij or supporting the regime or the Revolutionary Guard or, or whatever, and, it had, and, and women who have made it very, very difficult for, people in the secu- for men in the security uh, services to continue what they're doing. I think the revolution in Iran, and I believe there will be a second revolution in Iran sooner than later, I think it will be uh, spearheaded by the actions of women. It may not be led by women at this point, uh, because Iranian political organizations uh, don't have the with power. the exception, well, with the exception yeah. of some of the Kurdish groups, in particular Pajak, which has women, uh, you know, shares power between women and men. They're actually co-led; they have co-leaders, um, but most of the others do not. Uh, but I think women will absolutely play a vital role, a key role in the revolution in Iran, and I think it's coming. I do think it's coming. Do you- do you think it, would, it goes hand in hand with like what happened here in the 60s when women were, were burning their bras and now they're taking off their hijabs and hanging it you know, on trees and all of these kinds of things? Um, I, I, well, there's a, there's a you know, superficial similarity there, but I would be wary about that because remember, uh, what happened in the 60s was godless. What happened in the 60s uh, had really no moral background. There was no um, um, articulation of freedom. There was a rejection of the, of the old order, if you wish, or the, you know, the, the, the old ways of America. The, the, you know, anybody, don't trust anybody over 30. You know, I remember we used to say that <laughs> in the 60s. Uh, but there was, no, there was no vision of the future of the country. It was, a, it was just a tearing down. In the 60s, we tore down America. It's tragic. Really, when you think back on it, it's absolutely tragic. We tore down America with nothing in its place uh, except for uh, left-wing uh, George Soros-type radicals uh, and who spawned people like Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama. Uh, Iran, I don't yeah. think it's like that today. I don't think it's like that today. I think the, I think the women who are taking off their hijabs, waving them in public, I think they, they really do see a brighter future for Iran. It's an act of hope, not of despair and destruction. Hmm. Well said. Uh, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, so kind of a more of a question from someone in the States of what can I or, you know, people I know here in the United States do to help help some of, specifically, I guess, some of the Christians that are stuck over there, but as well as the whole, the whole aspect of freedom in, in, these, in these countries? Well, the first thing about about Christians, specifically in Iraq, and and I think uh, persecution is happening all across the world, in Nigeria, in Egypt, 
uh, Indonesia, lots of other places. But in Iraq, I believe that we as Americans bear a particular responsibility because we went into that country in 2003, I believe, with good intentions to liberate Iraq. Uh, but for a number of years, things went very badly. And they went very badly because of American mismanagement. Um, there's no denying that. Uh, by the end of President Bush's term in 2000, January of 2009, uh, he had turned the corner. The surge had beat back the jihadi groups. Uh, they were pretty much pushed back underground. Uh, and Iraq was going all in the right direction. Then Obama comes in. And this is why I call the book ISIS, my book ISIS Begins. Obama comes in and he essentially gives a date certain to every opposition group in Iraq of when they could recommence their insurgency. And that's the, obviously the date when U.S. troops pull out. Uh, and so, so what you have today is this un, union, uh, this, this um, um, sort of melding of the uh, jihadi Muslim groups, the leftovers, leftovers of al-Qaeda who went on the ground during the surge, and the Ba'ath Party, the Saddam Hussein left behind, stay behind, excuse me, the Saddam Hussein stay behind intelligence network, they joined together, they joined forces, and that's what became ISIS. That's where ISIS begins. So what you can do about it, the very first thing to do about it is learn about it, because this is not a very well-known story. Uh, Obama was telling people these, these guys were the JV team. He was saying, oh, gosh, nobody could have predicted ISIS uh, coming, you know, their, their creation. Yeah. Well, that's just horse pucky. It's absolute horse pucky. And you'll see that in my book. Uh, uh, you know, it's absolute horse pucky. Anybody who was on the ground, who was paying attention, who was not comatose, <laughs> saw this coming already in, in 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, so that's the very first thing. Read about it, learn about it, understand what has happened to Iraqi Christians, learn about their culture. Uh, the Assyrian Christians of Iraq, Arama they, they still speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus. People don't understand yeah. that. So I tried to put that in my book as well. There's a, there's an, there's a document that gets seized when my um, uh, main character, who's an interpreter for for U.S. Special Forces, they take down a jihadi network, and uh, they find uh, on the person of uh, uh, the, lead, the, the head of the cell this, this document in a strange language. The Americans think it's in code. They send it down to Baghdad to be analyzed. And, in fact, the, uh, the interpreter said, well, you know, actually, it's in Aramaic, sir. They <laughs> said, oh, you can read it? Said, yeah, I can read it. <laughs> So, so now, and it turns out to be no, – this is getting into the plot of my book, but it turns out to be part of a diary written by Nestorian monks in the 7th century AD in Arabia. And these Nestorian monks uh, were the ones who Islamic tradition tells us dictated portions of the Quran to Muhammad. And wow. as Muhammad – as Muhammad became more powerful, uh, he became more wealthy, he became more arrogant, he became more violent, he became a sex fiend and a pervert, the Nestorian monks uh, started to distance themselves from him, and it, by the end of it, they were tearing their hair and saying, God forbid us what a monster we have created. 
and this is kind of all woven into my into this book, uh, my book ISIS Begins. Uh, <laughs> so you have you know part of the uh, the the ancient story that's been around the Middle East for fourteen hundred years of how Islam began. Well, ISIS begins with Islam too, right? So is this uh, yeah, what you're talking about when um, when um, Muhammad left Mecca and went into Medina? Is that the time period that you're talking about? Even before that. So the story with the, the, the monks, the monks discover him when he's a camel driver uh, on the caravans at the age of 12, you know, 12 years old, 14 years old, going between Damascus and, um, and Mecca. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a camel boy. And at night, by the fire, drinking tea, he would have visions and tell stories of these visions that he had. And, and uh, so the diary of these monks starts with the, the, the original monk, whose name is Bahira, listening to this and saying, oh, uh, Lord, I see in this one a, a young man of vision. Perhaps we can use him as a vessel to bring your gospel to Araby. So they thought they could teach him. They thought they could instruct him. And, uh, and that's why the Quran, by the way, is so, so full of um, uh, characters from the Old Testament. That's why Jesus yeah. is a character in the Quran, is because uh, uh, Muhammad borrowed all this stuff from the people who yeah. he was illiterate. People forget this. He couldn't read or write. No. So everything, no. he, everything he, that's in the Quran was, was stories that he was hearing from his Jewish uncle-in-law and Bahira, Bahira the Nestorian Christian monk. And, and Kenneth, Kenneth, I want to, uh, you know, I want to get into something, you know, kind of uh, slightly off topic, but it has to do with the Middle East. And you're an expert at, uh, you know, g- the, you know, all the jihad, all the ISIS stuff, all the terrorism stuff. Do you think and agree, you know, with, with Trump's assessment, I, I agree with Trump on this, and, and a, a lot of other people do. Some people disagree, but what I'm, about, what I'm about to say, I think it was a mistake to, and so does Trump and, and you know, like I said, to uh, take out Saddam Hussein. I think it really destabilized the Middle East going into Iraq. Do you agree in a sense that Saddam Hussein kept things balanced and we would not be in this ISIS mess uh, today if he was still alive? Uh, I, I don't. And uh, it was Bush who took him out, right? Not Trump. It was Bush who took him out. Trump said it was a mistake. I said Trump. I said Trump. No, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I said Trump. I said, quote unquote, Trump said it was a mistake going into the Trump into said Iraq. It was a mistake after. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Trump said it was a mistake going into Iraq. No, I supported the war in Iraq and I supported it for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, I had uh, almost two decades experience in Iraq. I understood Saddam Hussein very, very well. Uh, he was not just a dictator. He was a murderous, genocidal dictator, murdered hundreds of thousands of his own people. And the balance, the so-called balance that he kept uh, in the Middle East uh, between the Sunni, Sunni, Sunni force, forces and the Shia of Ayatollah Khomeini was only so long as the Iranians were strong. Once he beat the Iranians in 1988 in the eight-year-long war, he started to turn against his own Sunni allies, Kuwait. Remember, he invaded Kuwait. Why did he invade Kuwait? Because, you know, uh, he thought he could get more money. He was going to attack the Saudis as well. So Saddam had regional aspirations, um, and he was absolutely developing nuclear chemical 
biological weapons and ballistic missiles. At the very moment that our troops were going into Iraq in March of 2003, the UN inspectors who were still on the ground, they were still on the ground, they were destroying under a last minute agreement with Saddam Hussein, ballistic missiles that, that were in violation of the, uh, uh, the ceasefire from 1991. So, <laughs> You know, there's, there's, and afterwards, the commission that was sent in there to, to, to explore this whole subject of weapons of mass destruction, uh, they found a thousand tons of uranium. Now, everybody said no weapons of mass destruction. Well, gee, what do you make of a thousand tons of uranium? That uranium actually stayed in Iraq until 2007, when it was finally shipped to Canada under uh, uh, the auspices of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, they found um, you know, ballistic missiles. They found uh, precursors for biological weapons. They found chemical weapons factories. My gosh, it, it, you know, the infrastructure for manufacturing chemical weapons was intact. The precursors were scattered and missing, and that's what confused everybody. The stockpiles of actual built-up chemical weapons had been destroyed. That's what confused everybody. Yeah. But all of the, the production material was still there. Uh, in some cases, there, there were actually hundreds of tons of precursor chemicals that were found. Uh, and the intent of Saddam Hussein was crystal clear to maintain all of those programs and to revive them uh, at some point. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I want. I want to. I kind of want. I wanted to. I. We have. We have. We're on a time frame. I have so much to ask you, and you have all this. You know, different experience with so many different things. Um. You know, we were talking about. Um. Earlier, obviously, is the main headline. Um. You know, President Trump, meeting with. Uh. You know, Putin. Uh. Yes. Uh. Yesterday. And, you know, basically we see the left media screaming treason, making up a phony narrative. Uh, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, everything else they do. I mean, they, they want to get their audience uh, all excited for nothing and, uh, you know, brainwash them. Uh, but this was, uh, this was a positive. This was a good thing, you know. And uh, I want to know your thoughts, though. I didn't get your thoughts yet. Well, I, I was kind of—I was actually quite surprised when I heard uh, President Trump at that press conference saying, "Why wouldn't well, you know? Why would the Russians do it?" I, and I said, what? "What? What did he? What did he just say?" And and so I actually think it's plausible that he misspoke. Uh, and people do that; they do it all the time on TV, by the way. And half the time, right. the, the 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 hosts on TV don't even correct the people who misspeak. They just assume that everybody knows that they misspoke, and and they go on as if what they had not said was what they had said. Right. You know, these things do actually happen. Um, this said, you could see that uh, President Trump has never gotten over these relentless allegations, false allegations, and he's right to call it a witch hunt that he somehow yeah. colluded with the Russians. And his his political problem is that he conflates, he confuses, if you wish, the the two halves of the Russia investigation. He confuses the half that says uh, Russia uh, hacked the DNC server. Okay, that he agrees with, that he understands. And he confuses that with the Democrat side, which 
Trump colluded with the Russians, which didn't happen. And uh, he really, you know, uh, he needs to separate those two in his mind. I understand that it's very difficult because he is under relentless attack. That's all the Democrats want to talk about because everything that they have done is a failure. Most of what Trump has done has been a success. So they are looking for every possible way to undermine him. And this uh, has been a, uh, you know, has has been uh, uh, their preferred tactic since, you know, since the election in 2016. Yeah, and and you know it just it creates so many opportunities. I mean, you know, it, it's good to have a powerful ally like Russia. I mean, you you know you don't why why have enemies? Why you know when when there's well, so, well, there's well, Russia, Russia Russia's not Russia's not an ally. They're not about to become an ally. Yeah, no, that, but I don't mean not, that. I don't mean I mean like cordial. I mean cordial. You know, just be civil with each other. And there could possibly be some trade deals and some negotiations. Trump said about with him and, and Russia uh, that could benefit the both of them. And uh, you know, that it could open a lot of different doors. Uh, economically. I, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put I, I I wouldn't put the cart before the horse. Russia is a is a, you know if you took the top. 20 countries that the U.S. trades with, Russia doesn't make it. They don't even make it in the top 100 countries that we trade with. Uh, there, are, there are, you know, the joke used to be after the fall of the Soviet Union, they were Sierra Leone with, with missiles, with nukes. Uh, today, it's slightly different, but not much. Russia is not doing very well. Uh, their main, they have two exports, uh, oil and gas yes. and weapons, yes. and that's it. Uh, so what, they're not a great trading your, partner, and they have a tremendous your, damage, excuse me. They have a tremendous capacity for yeah. mischief, and and that that is the problem. What right. what what I liked about what Trump said, and and it, I thought it was a telling moment. Nobody's really picked up on. He said our militaries understand each other very very well in Syria. Yep. Well, you know what happened recently between our militaries in Syria is that the Russians crossed the red line that we had set for them near the Iraqi border. And we massacred 200 of them. We killed 200 Russian mercenaries who had crossed that red line. And Putin was sitting there nodding his head. Yes, our militaries understand each other very well. If Russia understands the red lines, that's a very good thing. That's a very positive development. And I think we can thank President Trump for that. Right. So your takeaway from that, you know, if you had to pinpoint it, um, you know, you are you obviously are very happy with, with, the, with the success of the meeting. And, uh, you know, what, what, what do you think is going to come out of it? Your thoughts? Well, I, I don't know if it was a successful meeting. We're going to have to see whether it was or not. But I, I, was, I was appalled that the president fell for KGB tricks. Putin is a KGB officer, uh, and he was using classical KGB uh, tactics uh, to deflect, uh, to deny. First you deny, then you deflect. Uh, attention away from your misdeeds and then you create a a deception over here on the other side. By the way, very similar to what Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton did in Benghazi. Uh, But Putin was doing the same thing. So he said, oh, well, let's let Mueller, Robert Mueller, send his investigators to Russia to interview our guys. That's never going to happen. And then he throws in, uh, you know, Bill Browder here in the United States. Give me a break. Classic KGB deception techniques, and there I was a little bit appalled that the president fell for it, and I'm willing to bet you, I can't state this as a fact, but uh, knowing some of his advisors as I do, I'm willing to bet you that they uh, uh, bent his ear a little bit on the airplane coming back, 
saying, well, Mr. President, uh, actually, uh, he has no intention of doing that. That's a KGB ploy. They do this kind of thing all the time. What, what did you think of Putin calling out George Soros? Uh, that was hilarious. I thought that was a hoot. And and also uh, a hoot was Putin in his interview with with, uh, uh, with uh, Chris Wallace later on, essentially admitting that the Russians had hacked the DNC server. I don't know if you caught that, Chris but he was Wallace there. Asked, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, okay, yeah, and you're saying to Chris Wallace, well, well, gee, did they plant any disinformation? Did 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 they release anything that was not true? <laughs> Even the Democrats acknowledged that everything that was revealed was true, <laughs> and he was there, kind of gloating over this. So you kind of knew uh, that was to me that was as much as an admission you're ever going to get from Putin. And uh, if I, had, you know, if I had been advising the president, I would say, Mr. President, take that one to the bank. Yeah, and, and, you know, yeah, and the fact that Chris Wallace asked him about, well, Mr. Putin, you've been responsible for certain deaths, uh, you know, of your political opponents. I was shocked he asked him that question in Russia. I was like, whoa, this guy, Chris Wallace, has some balls asking him that question. He was very good. He was very good. And, and uh, uh, you would not have seen um, many other journalists doing that. I give hats off to, to Chris Wallace. Absolutely. Well, yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, what I'm noticing, you know, look at President Trump, what he did with NATO. I mean, he, he got them to pay $34 billion with a B extra, you know, with, negoti- with negotiations and, uh, you know, making them uh, – you know, uh, pay their fair share. I mean, you know, not backing down and, and being firm, setting a setting a standard, setting a guideline. Well, that's right. And uh, this is a story that's been going on for an awful long time. Um, yep. You know, I can remember covering. We uh, they pay a fraction. Fish. They pay a fraction right. of what we pay. Absolutely. No, that's that's absolutely correct, and it's been that way for decades. Uh, but um, you know, with the end of the Cold War. Uh, we as Americans, and, and the president has said this openly and he campaigned on this, we have to decide whether the NATO alliance today is worth it to us. Is, is Russia the same threat that the Soviet Union was during the Cold War? No, they're not. Um, and yet there are new members of NATO, in particular the Baltic states and Poland, uh, who feel militarily threatened by Russia. So, you know, it's a balancing act. But you're right. The president has very successfully gotten the Europeans to start ponying up, and they're going to have to pony up an awful lot more to to meet their commitments. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing all this big stuff happen in terms of, you know, the RNC uh, raised 213 million, fastest ever, 99% small donors uh, to spend 250 million in 2018. I mean, they're breaking records. Trump 2020 group raised $32 million in just three months for Trump's reelection. I mean, the Republicans are rocking right now because the, the Democrats have no message. We all know this. Well, but they're rocking because of Donald J. Trump. Uh, exactly. We, we have a, we have it's a the pres- Donald J. Yeah. Trump party. It's, and I've said that on my show so many times. It's the party of Trump. And 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 uh, those who are not happy for it to be the party of Trump 
uh, need to think what they actually stand for today. Trump is uh, he's 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 shaken things up in a big way uh, and in a way that that ordinary Americans have been longing for for years. Uh, he's telling he tells people the truth. He speaks the truth. It's unvarnished. Yes. It's not polished. Uh, it's in, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, in New York ease, if you wish. Uh, he speaks sometimes like a street fighter. Uh, and uh, but that's OK. That's what people want. He is finally telling them the truth. And as he said at the inauguration, I was at the inauguration. Uh, he, he, this is the beginning of uh, government returning to the people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. One hundred percent. And you know what I really want to ask you? You know, we do. We are on a time frame. I want to keep you on for a little longer. Um, I, I do have a lot, some, some more questions. For, first of all, you wrote a book about Jesse Jackson exposing him. Um, please tell me a little bit about that. I can't stand that guy. The guy's the biggest <laughs> phony of all time. He's like you. He's the same as Al Sharpton. Um, please, I, I would love to hear about that. Well, uh, I'll tell you a little story. The, so the book's called uh, uh, Exposing the Real Jesse Jackson. It's about his shakedown techniques. And um, it, uh, the race a, card a critical biography. Right. It, it begins with his initial claim to fame, which is that he cradled Martin Luther King's head in his arms while he died. And uh, as it turns out, I, I found out from people who had been there uh, at that time, it never happened. Jesse Jackson was uh, you know, down in the parking lot. He was nowhere near the balcony when he was shot. He was nowhere near uh, King when he died. But he went upstairs to the room, then smeared blood all over his shirt and appeared on the, the news the next morning, claiming that he had held Martin Luther King in his arms while he died. Uh, and then you learn that uh, uh, I learned investigating him, talking to people who knew him, going to the church where he was, uh, he was um, ordained in Chicago, um, you know, you learn that he began his um, shakedown techniques as basically working with street gangs, a very powerful street gang called the Blackstone Rangers or the Black Pea Stone Rangers in Chicago, uh, which was uh, headed by a guy named Jeff Fort, who was ultimately sent to prison for uh, on terrorism charges, and in which his half brother Noah Robinson was a key figure. Noah Robinson was also sent to prison and is still in prison on terrorism charges. So uh, Jesse took those same tactics where he'd bring 30, 40, 50 gang members uh, to picket a store so customers couldn't go in. And then he'd go in, he would go into the store and talk to the owner and say, um, I understand you got a problem. The guys are, yeah, you, you got these guys out front. He said, well, I can solve your problem. It's just going to cost you X number of dollars. Right, it's an old protection racket. A shakedown. It's a shakedown. Uh, he perfected that on the streets of Chicago, and then took it to corporate America, took it to Wall Street, and added many, many zeros on the end of the amounts of money that he uh, demanded from corporate America, from Toyota and and all kinds of other companies like that. So that's what shakedown is all about, uh, and it's based on you know there's an awful lot of documentation. There are interviews with Jackson, interviews interviews with people around him. Um, and, and um, you know a lot of facts uh, about his life. But here's a, a little anecdote to tell you: is that you mentioned Al Sharpton. So uh, a buddy of mine was on the shuttle from Washington D.C. up to uh, LaGuardia uh, not too long yeah. after Shakedown appeared, and there was Al Sharpton in the plane, 
holding a copy of Shakedown, <laughs> you know, and, and with a highlighter. And he was highlighting all this different stuff. And he turned, Sharpton turned to his seatmate uh, at one point and said, you mean Jesse got 50000 for those mothers? You know, I only asked him for 10000 You know, what's the matter with me? i got to learn to ask for more. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Al Sharpton was in the minor leagues compared to Jesse Jackson. Now that's funny. That's funny. I do. I do have. A, I do want to get to some more stuff. Um, I, uh, you know, your your political career. Please talk about that because I know you were the nominee in Maryland, which you know is a very tough place to be a Republican. It's 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 like a majority Democrat and. Uh, you know, I, I even saw in the it's Senate like this year. It's like, it's like yeah, California saw, without Orange County. And what's funny, if I'm not mistaken, is no Democrats ran in, I mean, no Republicans ran in, in Maryland for the Senate this year. Am I wrong? Uh, no, we have a we have a, a nominee, Tony Campbell. There were actually eight people in the primary. Did, does he have a good chance, you think? Uh, well, uh, all the polls say no. Uh, and no. history yeah. says no, uh, but yeah. uh, you know Maryland is where Republicans go to die, unfortunately. But pl- please, please tell me though about your political career because you have you know you have a big resume. Please. Well, uh, you know the the um, uh, I was the Republican nominee in 2012 to run against Chris Van Hollen um, in a in a district which had been redistricted, so it looked like there was a a possibility that it could swing back Republican. It had been Republican 10 years earlier. Uh, and so there was some hope there. Uh, ben Holland is a, um, uh, is a uh, incredible hypocrite. Uh, somebody who always claims that he's acting in a bipartisan basis and he votes 99% of the time with Democrats. Um, he's somebody who, who uh, right, completely, completely left wing. He claims that he's pro-Israel, and he votes against Israel. He, re, he votes against uh, money for missile defense in Israel uh, again and again and again. Um, and I, you know, I put out a because there was a lot of uh, a large Jewish population in the district, so I put out a a twelve-page, um, sixteen-page, I think, newsletter uh, on uh, Van Hollen's record on Israel, and he was just livid. We had a we had an event in a synagogue uh, about a week later, and he came holding this up, calling it garbage and invention and I all the rest there. of it. I was there. Tell me one. <laughs> oh, you were there. Was, uh, yeah. Tell me yeah, one you're, you, It's true. my district. It's my district. Oh, that was your district. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was, it was really it something. It was insane. And, uh, yeah, it was insane. And, and I actually won some of the Jewish precincts uh, in the general election uh, that had never voted for a Republican before. Um, and yet I lost uh, by a huge percentage. So go figure, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. It's a shame. It's a real but shame. And, and yeah, it is, it, it, it is a real shame. And it's a, you know, it's a damn, I hate all these corrupt politicians. It disgusts me. And I know you do a lot of different TV interviews and stuff like that. And you're very involved uh, in DC. I want to get your thoughts. Um, you know, there there is a – Republicans are putting together uh, plans to in, try to impeach Rosenstein. I want to know your thoughts on that. I want to, I want to get – because I know you've, you've been paying close attention to this. Well, uh, I, I'd like to see the uh, 
factual basis. My guess is that they're going to um, uh, use as predicates the uh, his refusal to produce documents, his refusal to produce wet- witnesses. I'm not sure that's going to pass muster. Uh, I don't think it's going to pass the whole House unless they've got some kind of smoking gun that I haven't seen yet and that the public hasn't seen yet. But I don't see that they are going to win a majority support in the Republican caucus for impeaching Rosenstein unless they've got something we haven't seen yet. Hey, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I know it's a long shot. I know it's a, you know, at this point, it's a pipe dream. I, I don't see it happening. I, unfortunately we have to deal with the little weasel. I, I can't stand the guy. He is so dirty and, and, and corrupt. Um, you know, and he sees behind closed doors with so many, uh, you know, these scandalous things going on. I don't trust him at all. Um, well, what, what the, I do the problem to... is that he's in charge. That he's in charge of the Russia investigation. The problem is that Jeff Sessions uh, abandoned his duty, yeah, recused himself, uh, and recused turned himself. it over. Recused himself when he really had no reason to do so whatsoever. The the um, uh, you know the recusal. In fact, when you go back and listen to him, it was for a criminal investigation. But the Russian investigation was not a criminal investigation in the beginning. It was a counterintelligence investigation. So there was no reason right. for him to recuse himself. But you know, all that's water over the dam. We are where we are today. It is a disastrous yeah. situation. We saw how it, it played out in in Helsinki. It's a, it's affecting the president. Um, uh, and uh, it's affecting the country. It is not good. It's not healthy for this country. Jeff Sessions is so weak. I mean, we have the weakest attorney general. Imagine if we had a a talented, competent, strong, and tough attorney general that we could utilize, and, you know, it could be a a amazing thing that could happen. I I, I think he's talented and competent, and, and I don't, and I, I've met just Jeff Sessions and spent some but time with him. But he's controlled. He's controlled. Well, I don't know that he's controlled. I don't know that he's controlled. I think that he, I think that he, uh, he did what he saw as the politically correct thing, which uh, was a huge mistake. Yeah, huge it mistake. was. He's been. I mean, yeah, it, this would be over by now if he hadn't have done that. This would be over. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. So the problem you got with both Sessions and Rosenstein is so who's, who comes after them? You know, if, if Trump were to fire both of them, who comes next? Uh, and you'll, you'll notice that the Senate has been very shy on right. confirming Department of Justice, high-level Department of Justice officials. And that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, it, it would get worse. I mean, we're caught in the pickle. I mean, we, we're caught. Right. We, we're stuck. We can't do anything. I mean, we just have to, right. you know, uh, kind of you let let it happen and, you know, kind of just uh, deal what, with what we have. It's unfortunate, though. Uh, yeah, there could be so much better leadership. Um, you know, I'm uh, – I'm just – I wish Hillary Clinton, I wish Jim Comey, I wish Andrew McCabe, I wish all of these – Peter Stork, we need to hold these people accountable, but it just seems like they're walking free, and it's disgusting. Well, they are, and, and they're, they're – you know, as, as you know, people like Jim Jordan of the Freedom Caucus have remarked, I was at an event with him just tonight, you know, he said there's, there's – it gives the impression that there are two systems of justice – in this country, one for the Clintons and the Comeys and the Peter Strzoks and the 
the Andy McCaves and the rest of them, uh, and another system of justice for the rest of us schlubs. So, uh, you know, it just it, it's 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 not healthy for our democracy. No, it's not. And, you know, and we have it's God and it just it just proves that, you know, that all these high high up super elite, you know, these elites uh, get this special treatment and, and, and you know, get to be above the law. It's just disgraceful. I can't even put it into words how, you know, anybody else would be in prison for a long time if they did what the Clintons did and they did what some of the stuff the Obamas did. That's true. And and you and you got all these different things, but, um, you know, I'm I uh, I think a big red wave is coming. I want to know your thoughts on that. We got a couple minutes, but I want to know your thoughts in the midterms. Well, um, you know, as the president says, we, we will see. But I think, I think you know, as happened in 2016, uh, the media got all the polling wrong. Uh, you will notice, by the way, that yep. uh, the media is talking much, much less about polling these days than they were just three yep. or four months ago. In fact, I haven't yep. heard them talk about it much at all. And my right. gut tells me uh, that means one thing. It means that the internal polls for the Democrats are showing uh, that the election is turning away from them, and that uh, and that the president's going to retain both the House and win seats in the Senate. Oh, I, oh absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, I, um, I'm I, I'm a good friend of mine, and I'm helping him with his campaign. Is America's toughest sheriff Joe Arpaio down here in Arizona? He's running for Senate, and uh, you know he's he's got his big fan base, thirty year fan base, and he's got about 70% of he's got about 70% of Trump supporters plus his 30 year fan base. I think he's he has a uh, he's going to win. I don't think anybody can beat his celebrity status and his name recognition and voters number one concern is illegal immigration. He's the godfather of immigration. Well, that's true and and um uh, th- that is true. Um I, I, I would just caution you on one thing. Roy Moore thought that uh, he couldn't be beat either. And you yep. saw that that uh, what he wound up doing was polarizing and energizing the other side. Uh, so you have to be careful what you wish for. I haven't followed that Senate primary campaign very closely. I know that there are right. other people involved with it, including Martha McSally, uh, and the president has supported Martha McSally. Um, She's a rhino. But, you know. Uh, well, that's what people are saying, and, and, I've, and I've heard that, and I understand that. I've heard that. Yeah. I'm uh, just so glad that Jeff Flake is retiring. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's terrible. And, and you know, um, and, and, and the other person running, uh, Kelly Ward in the Republican primary, she's a rhino. So the only true conservative running is Joe Arpaio, and, uh, you know, that's the thing. So um, I, uh, he's going to win this thing because people want the outsider. People want – uh, you know, uh, people that are going to support the Trump agenda, and we all know how close close of friends Arpaio and Trump are. Uh, Arpaio was the first person Trump right. pardoned. Um, That's right. But I, I do, I do got to let you go. I want you to promote whatever you got to do real quick, thirty seconds. Yeah. Well, so uh, go to my website, KenTimmerman.com. T i m m e r m a n. KenTimmerman.com. 
the yep. latest book is ISIS Begins on the Christians of Iraq. It's a novel, a war novel. It's a love story, and it's an yep. intrigue about the origins of Islam. And I think once you read the first couple of pages, I challenge you to put it down. Perfect. I love that, Ken. And, Ken, I want to have you back on the show very soon. We love your insight. We love your knowledge. You're a fantastic guest. Well, thanks very much. It's my pleasure to be with you. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, Ken, we'd love to have you back on next week if you're available. Uh, I, I ought to be. Um, let's, let's correspond on that off air, but I should be, yes. Okay, perfect. Sounds good, Ken. Always a pleasure. Have a great night. God bless. Cheers. Okay, you too. God bless. God bless. All righty. What an amazing show. I want to thank all my guests. I want to thank all my co-hosts. I want to thank everyone. Um, We have another big show tomorrow. The stuff I didn't get to today, I will get to tomorrow. Um, I'm Rory Sauter. You can visit RorySauter.tv. You can visit GetYourAppBelt.com. You can visit um, TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com. Again, that's TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com. Um, and uh, we have our new media empire site, the Next Gen USA, coming out very soon. I can't wait to share it with you all. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. God bless. Much love. Cheers.